quick update. UNLV has made it official. Eric Harper has been named the athletic director. He was the interim AD since August when Desiree Francois left to go to Missouri. So they have made that official. Eric Harper is your new athletic director for UNLV. But the Raiders got a 23-20 win, a walk-off field goal from Daniel Carlson to beat the Colts and set themselves up with a win-and-in scenario in week 18 against the Chargers, or as Adam so kindly pointed out to us earlier in the show, if the Colts lose to the Jags, it's a tie-in yes. scenario for both the Chargers and the yes. Raiders. Yes, embrace the <laughs> chaos. I love it. <laughs> the one problem with that, though, am I if uh, assuming the Steelers don't because the Steelers are still technically involved, if they win their last two games, they'll have a chance here too. But assuming the Steelers lose a game, if the Jags, if the Jags beat the Colts too, the Raiders are in before that game against the chargers, regardless of the result. So that would kind of, I mean, sure they could still play for the tie, but the Raiders wouldn't have any reason to play for a tie. They could play to knock out the chargers. They could. So uh, actually, here's why. Here's what we need. All right, I'm clicking around on five uh, five thirty eight's projector here. The Steelers need to win out, right? And the Colts need to beat or lose to the Jags, and then the Chargers and Raiders would be in a scenario where if they tie, they both go, and if they if they don't have a tie, the winner goes and the loser is out. So we need the Steelers to win out the Colts to lose to the Jags, and then both teams can decide to say, you know what, instead of trying, if we both tie, we're in. It's perfect. The Browns have nothing to play for tonight. And it's been Ben Roethlisberger's last game at home. And then next week, you get them against a Ravens team they've already beaten. It's perfect. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. 0-0 tie. <laughs> Roger Goodell implodes. Both teams go to the playoffs. Step three, profit. <laughs> it would be, okay, it would be hilarious because what the NFL likes to do in week 18 is they have a Sunday night football game, but they try to find the matchup that is like least dependent on other results, right? Because they don't want the last game of the season to be, hey, this team's already clinched the five seed and this team's out, but you're going to watch them in prime time. Anyways, they want to find a game that is going to have stakes regardless of the previous games and Raiders chargers is a great selection because again, assuming the Colts beat uh, the Jags, it's going to be a winner take all game winner goes to the playoffs situation, but it would be great if the game they selected for that absolutely has no meaning because both teams could tie and get in and they both were to do it. It'd be great. I'd be on board for that as much as I like, I'm excited for Sunday night football, because it's most likely going to be, hey, winner goes to the playoffs, loser goes home. It's effectively a playoff game for the Raiders. I like chaos, and your chaos scenario here is much more fun. So think about last year's game that we got in this slot. Remember what it was? Washington and Philadelphia trying to decide the NFC East, which losing team was going to win the <laughs> NFC East. Uh and we all got up in arms because Philadelphia didn't take it seriously. They threw Nate Sudfeld out there in the second half. And you and I have talked on this show already about should the Raiders try to be a middle-of-the-pack team that just barely makes the playoffs, or should they just try to blow the whole thing up? Well, you know what Philadelphia did? 
They threw Nate Sudfeld out there as a third-string quarterback, <laughs> tanked their way to a higher pick, used that to trade into better position. They're doing it this year. They have clinched a playoff berth, and they have three first-round picks next year. So what I really hope for is exactly what I just mentioned. I want complete and total chaos. So whether that is the Jags winning and setting us up uh, with the Pittsburgh as well, or whether that is the Raiders just saying, yeah, you know what? We want an extra four spots of draft position. So you know what? Uh, we're bringing back Peterman for this game. <laughs> no, no. I mean, look, jokes aside, when, when, when we look at, at this particular game for the Raiders, I had someone ask me yesterday, what do you think? You know, Raiders versus Chargers. It's a coin flip. Uh, you could make it a three-point spread in favor of the Chargers if you want, but this game is a complete total coin flip. Yeah, I don't I don't have much confidence in really either team is going to come out and be dominant. I guess I could see it more likely the Chargers win by a couple of touchdowns, but I think at the end of the day, we are getting a game that comes down to the final five minutes. Like, we're going to have a one-possession game in the final five minutes, and the Raiders have been pretty good in those scenarios this year, so it might simply be, hey, if Derek Carr gets a shot, the Raiders might be going to the playoffs because of it. But I, I do have a difficult time seeing either team really being the better team, being dominant or, or whatever. I think it's going to be a close game. I think it, we're going to end up with a very fun Sunday night football game that decides the final playoff spot in all of the NFL for 2022. It's going to be great. Now, what do you think Derek Carr likes more? Winning or proving Rich Gannon wrong? Because two weeks ago, Rich Gannon tweeted, what's the most important stat for a QB? Wins, period. And it was a veiled, not so veiled shot at Derek Carr. Yesterday, after the Raiders beat the Colts, his post-game interview on Fox, Derek Carr gave this answer. I just think it's funny how we're winning games. You know, it's just a story of our, our season. You know, uh, you know, we're turning the ball over. You know, we sometimes we don't get a first down. All these different kind of things and all this adversity, yet we find a way to win. And from what I hear, that's all that matters. <laughs> so what does Derek Carr care more about? Actually winning or proving Rich Gannon wrong? Could there be a more Raiders fight than <laughs> a quarterback who got to a Super Bowl and got blasted versus a quarterback who has never played in the playoff game fighting with each other about wins? It's ridiculous, man. This whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. So what does Derek Carr like more? Derek Carr loves a good dub on social media. The Carr family loves dubs on social media. It's where they've gotten most of their wins in their career. <laughs> Wait a minute. Have have the Carr brothers, have they claimed he's MVP yet? Have they gone back to uh, saying Derek Carr's MVP again? I did actually have a friend whose football opinion I respect text me last night and say, if the Raiders make the playoffs, there should be some Derek Carr MVP consideration. And had he played well down this stretch, I wouldn't argue with getting like a fifth place vote. But he hasn't played well at no, all. No. David Carr has a Super Bowl ring. He did a lot to get it. <laughs> now, it's not only Rich Gannon. Damian Lillard, known Raiders fan, uh, he tweeted out a picture of Russell Wilson in a Raiders jersey. Because Russell Wilson uh, could be done with the Seahawks after this year. Um, he gave a quote earlier in the week about how he hopes it's not his last game in Seattle, but he knows he's not done playing in the NFL. Um, do you think, what do you think makes Derek Carr more upset? A couple of years ago, 
when he was mad that the Review Journal put Tom Brady on the front cover, hinting at the possibility that Brady, oh, he met with Mark Davis, maybe he's going to be a Raider. Or Damian Lillard, a fellow athlete, a massive Raiders fan, out here promoting a completely different quarterback to take his job. I can't believe Damian Lillard wants Pro Football Focus's 20th-rated quarterback (laughs) over its 9th-rated quarterback. Wow, what a level of disrespect that is. You know, the thing is, we've seen these things like the Tom Brady situation where we say, oh, Derek Carr is going to feed off the disrespect. To do what? Get to 9-7. and To do what? To finish 9-7. and Oh, man. Glad they put that one up in the locker room. (laughs) That's what they make newsprint for, right? Like, I just don't understand what we're saying the motivation here is. Uh, You you know what I think about Derek Carr. I've been clear about this for the last five years. Above average quarterback, you can win with Derek Carr. I don't know that you can continue to win in spite of Derek Carr, though. And that's really where things are for the Raiders, right? You need everything else to be good around the rest of this roster to win consistently, with Derek Carr, that's where I worry about this week. That's where I worry about them going forward. You brought it up earlier, and I thought it was a great point when you said about the rest of this roster, are the pieces in place, whether it's Derek Carr or the rest of it, to build a foundation to go win for years to come? I don't think so. No, it's it's definitely not. I mean, if you were, like, if we play the hypothetical game, Raiders miss the playoffs, and let's say, Mark Davis decides to clean house and there's a new general manager, there's a new head coach, there's a new everything. If you're a new general manager coming in and you evaluate this roster and you may first question is, can you win right now with this roster? Can you win a Super Bowl with this roster at any point in the near future? I think the obvious answer to every general manager is going to be no. And then that leads the question of, okay, what do you do? Do you continue to go forward as a nine win, 10 win team and just survive? Or do you blow it up to try to say, Hey, Three years from now, four years from now, we hope to have a roster that can win the Super Bowl. And if you do that, who are the foundational pieces for the Raiders, right? They've made Colton Miller one, and he's been a solid left tackle, but they've made Colton Miller one. Max Crosby has been very good this year. He's going to need a new contract if he's a foundational piece, but Max Crosby you can put in that category as well. After that, I mean... Who else is a foundational piece? I mean, maybe Hunter Renfro's played his way into that uh, situation now, but, like, there's not many foundational – there's not many young, good players on this team that you look at and say, that guy is going to help us win a Super Bowl at any point in the future. So it's very much a situation where the pieces aren't there. Like, Derek Carr's a fine quarterback, but the pieces are not there for this team to win a Super Bowl. I'm genuinely shocked the pieces are there for them to even have a chance at the playoffs, to be honest with you. So – it's not really a good situation short-term or long-term for the Raiders roster. No, and I obviously, you know, I know it was just a typo for you there, but add Darren Waller, of course, to the mix for, for yes. this team, even though they haven't had much of him for this year. I would add Andre James in there with the way he's played down the stretch, uh, considering just how weak the offensive line is for this team, that any sort of positive momentum on that offensive line needs to be someone that you keep. But uh, quite honestly, a new GM comes in here, Maybe Alex Leatherwood gets one more year. I'm not sure he gets more than that. Um, and that's Wait, an indictment what of what's here. Right tackle, yeah, right. right guard, left guard. Which one are we putting him at? Uh, left bench. <laughs> and so, you know, you look at what's there for the ro- for the roster and then look at the defense. And I think that's the real indictment overall. Right? Maybe Jonathan Abram gets another year now that he's showed he can play against the run and there's more running in the NFL. None of the young quarterbacks other than Nate Hobbs. Yeah. Um, 
you know, nobody at the linebacker level and nobody on the on the line with the exception of Max Crosby. Oh, by the way, a uh, shout out to Arden Key. 17 pass rushes yesterday, seven quarterback pressures no, for San Francisco. I don't believe that. Really? Check the numbers. Wow. Seven Arden pressures Key. on 17 rushes for Arden Key, another one of the <laughs> Raiders gone by. So, yeah, uh, uh, and, and I'm sure Derek Carr will, will make you a case for Zay Jones. That's hey, about it. Had a 100-yard game. His first of his career. I know. Look at Zay Jones. Jones go. That is a future number one wide receiver. Hey, he's out. Listen, all those routes run in a nameless Southern Highlands Park have finally paid off <laughs> for Zay Jones, getting his opportunity with 17 receivers hurt for the Raiders. All right, coming up next, UNLV basketball lost their conference opener to San Diego State. And I'll tell you why it's a worse loss than it actually appears. Bischoff's Briefs. I'm asking you if you know the difference between right and wrong. I discovered at a very early age that if I talk long enough, I could make anything right or wrong. Bischoff's Briefs. So either I'm God or truth is relative. Bischoff's Briefs. And in either case, booyah. Bischoff's Briefs. UNLV basketball lost to San Diego State. It's conference opener 62-55. And now UNLV continues its run of always winning as favorites and always losing as underdogs. They are 8-0 as favorites, 0-6 as underdogs. I still think that was a bad loss, though. It wasn't a bad loss in terms of expectations, right? They, they played pretty close to San Diego State, who's a good Mountain West team. It's not like they got blown out in that game. Didn't look like they didn't necessarily belong on the same court as San Diego State. It wasn't a bad loss in terms of losing to a bad team. It wasn't a bad loss that hurts their NCAA tournament chances because they really have three days in March or four days in March. That's all that's going to matter for their NCAA tournament hopes. But it was a bad loss in the context of this team and this season because UNLV still has yet to beat anyone of significance. And if you look at this year so far, they open the season playing three teams that are okay. Uh, Gardner Webb Cal uh, are teams that are not outside the top 200 to Ken Palm, but they're not in the top 100 either. So they're not good teams, but they're not bad teams. And they played really good defensively. They were bad offensively, but they ended up winning close games. And then they got their shot. They got Michigan. They got Wichita State. They got UCLA. Uh, they got SMU and San Francisco. They got five chances against five top 100 teams, five teams with legitimate NCAA tournament hopes. And they went 0-5. Yes, they looked okay at times against Michigan. Yes, they probably should have beaten Wichita State, but lost the game at the end. And then they got blown out by UCLA, SMU, and San Francisco. And all of a sudden... After those five losses, it was, okay, this team's defense has regressed significantly. And offensively, they still look bad. Then they ended non-conference play with four bad teams. They played some teams outside the top 300 in Ken Palm in there as well. But they looked a lot better offensively. It's their four best offensive games of the year. And there actually looked to be some purpose. There actually looked to be some change within the offense where they were able to attack the rim. They were able to finish at the rim. They were able to score with layups. They were not taking as many bad shots and then they got another chance to sort of prove themselves against a good team in San Diego State and that wasn't just San Diego State that was a winnable game 
that was a game where a UNLV played one of its better defensive games of the year. But more importantly, San Diego state didn't have two of its starting guards. They did not have a point guard, right? At one point they were playing a walk-on because they didn't have a point guard, right? And San Diego state dreadful offensively. If you don't factor in strength of schedule, if you're just looking at overall offensive efficiency, they're second worst in the mountain West this year. The only team that's been less efficient offensively is air force. That is a bad offensive team. And what did UNLV do? They played their worst offensive game of the season. 0.81 points per possession. Worst of the season. They shot 33% on two point shots. Worst of the season. And that's the worst. Anyone that San Diego state has played this year has shot on two pointers. The 0.81 points per possession was the third worst of any San Diego state opponent this season. UNLV was fine defensively, but the offense was so bad. All it had to do was beat, not even average. If they're just below average in that game, they went, but they were terrible on offense and they lost. So the question becomes when you look at this team, this season and into the future, if they can't win that game against that San Diego state team, are they ever going to beat a good team? Like they're going to get, I think it's 12 total games against the top 100 in the mountain West. Maybe we'll see how many games they actually play, but like, Nevada, Boise State, Utah State, Fresno State, Colorado State, and San Diego State. All those teams are top 100 teams. Right now, they're scheduled to play 12 total against them. They're not going 0-12 in those games. They're going to beat somebody, right? Fresno State, Nevada, they're top 100, but they're not close to really top 50. They're, they're going to go, they're going to win some of those games. But is it going to be like 2-10? Like, are they only pulling out two of those? Because if you go 2-10 against those teams, you're looking at, a not great Mountain West record. And we're not looking at a very good first season under Kevin Kruger. As many excuses as you want to make, you simply cannot have a positive first season if you go 2-10 and 10 against the good teams in the Mountain West. And this is where I think some criticism is fair of Kevin Kruger and his roster. This isn't like fire Kevin Kruger. This isn't like, oh, this guy's definitely not going to work out, right? But it is criticism here. Kevin Kruger did not build a good enough roster, right? In the offseason, he wanted to get more athletic, more physical than last year's team. And he did that compared to last year's team, right? But all he built was a team that can beat up on bad teams, that can physically overwhelm bad teams. He did not build a team that can score. And that, I think, is the biggest flaw because we saw last year what a team with Bryce Hamilton as the number one and only offensive shot creator on a team looked like. They were bad offensively last year. He Bryce Hamilton is a volume shooter. He's an inefficient player, right? And Kevin Kruger built a roster where that was still his number one option. He brought in Mike Nuga, who had a really good season at Kent State last year, but he's been a big disappointment this year. Donovan Williams has had some moments where he's looked good against bad teams as a scorer, but hasn't done it against anybody of significance. Kevin Kruger failed to fix the biggest problem on last year's team, and that was finding someone not named Bryce Hamilton that can create a shot, that can create some offense. They did not do that. After seeing it fail, he still walked into that same exact path. They're just a little bit more athletic, so defensively, they're better this year. There's no doubt they're a better team this year, but from a roster-building standpoint, I think that is a big miss by Kevin Kruger. And until we see, I don't know, some sort of massive turnaround from Donovan Williams or Mike Nuga, that's not going to change this year, and it makes it hard to find where they're going to win a significant number of games against good teams. So that lost San Diego State, 
expected. Not a bad loss in terms of the score, not a bad loss in terms of the opponent, but I think the outlook of this team, they sort of had another chance to prove, hey, we can do this. We can beat a solid team, and they failed again, and it becomes hard to find a way that they're actually going to win any number of these games against decent Mountain West opponents. So how much of the Bryce Hamilton as volume shooter slash closer is a self-fulfilling prophecy by him being on the roster at all? Because I wonder if some of these players who have come in haven't had the opportunity to grow into the role, right? If it's just easier to default back to knowing Bryce Hamilton can probably get a look, it might not be a great look, it might not be the smartest choice, but he probably can shake the defender enough to get separation and get a look. How much of it is Kevin Kruger and his staff allowing Bryce Hamilton to continue to do that? Because it doesn't seem like we watched anything different in that San Diego State game than we've watched in three or four years of games against San Diego State, right? That's why I said to Cofield yesterday, I've seen this game before. I've seen them do this. <laughs> um, I think we Mike Nuga has has been so bad that I think it's fair that, hey, Mike Nuga hasn't gotten a shot. But like take Donovan Williams, for example. They don't, they don't like run sets or even give other guys an opportunity to say, hey, you're the shot creator. Other guys have to find it within the flow of the offense, which is, again, when you're physically dominating Omaha, looks phenomenal because everybody can do it against Omaha. But when they've played good teams, there hasn't been a moment where, hey, let's try to run the offense through somebody not named Bryce Hamilton. They haven't done that. And I think that you're, you're right in a point where, yes, they have not gotten that opportunity because they're going to default to Bryce Hamilton. But I don't think we've actually seen enough good play from any of these guys. Like Jordan McCabe hasn't been good enough. Mike Nuga haven't been good enough to where you say, yes, we need to give them the opportunity to show what they can do. Donovan Williams is the only one where you've said, okay, we've seen enough good things from him where, hey, maybe we should give him some chances here. But you are right that it does default to Bryce Hamilton so much that it becomes, you know, it's very hard for other guys to sort of break through and prove it because... Bryce Hamilton is there. He is currently, when he's on the floor, taking 38% of UNLV shots. That is the third highest mark in the country. And it was like that from the beginning of the season until now. That has been consistent for this UNLV team. And what you get with Bryce Hamilton, and this is not a knock on what his future might or might not be in the NBA, but Bryce Hamilton can only be the best player on a mediocre team. And that's what you're seeing yes. with UNLV. Yes, I if they were going to have an NCAA tournament shot this year, they had to bring in somebody that was better than Bryce Hamilton for them to, to have that consideration. Mike Nuga was good at Kent State. He was very efficient at Kent State. If Mike Nuga had worked out and taken off and had been this awesome offensive player, we'd be having a completely different conversation. But he didn't. Mike Nuga has not. He's not worked out at all. He's shooting below 30% from three. He's shooting 40% on two-pointers, which is brutal. So, like... If he had worked out, then we were having a different conversation about Hamilton being, hey, he's the second best guy, but because he didn't, and they didn't really go after anybody else that could even potentially be that, we're talking about Bryce Hamilton as the best player, and Bryce Hamilton as the best player is a middling Mountain West team, and it wasn't ever going to be better than that. Coming up next, Justin Emerson joins the show. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. Featuring Adam Candy. Joining us now from the Las Vegas Sun is Justin Emerson. Good morning, Justin. Um, how was your morning with your child? It was tough. It was tough. It was the first day that I had to drop him off at daycare, and nobody warned me that that was going to be 
a, uh, a, a near traumatic experience for me. Really? So I'm I'm emotionally recovering right now. Okay, we got you. We've got you in a vulnerable state. I personally like that a lot. <laughs> I, well, genuinely, when when Jared, your producer, called me, I'm like, oh my gosh, if they play some sort of like mean mean soundbite of me, I, I might not be able to handle it this morning. So I'm glad you did. Oh, Tyler, Tyler, he's close to the edge. Let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> hey, what sort of awful coffee drink did you have this morning? What sort of out of season coffee are you drinking now, Justin? Um, we ran out of all the gingerbread coffee in the house over Christmas. Yeah, stop um, there. We're so good. Just, no, we're good. No, no. No, everything's everything's fine. By the way, thank you for specifying Jared, our producer, as opposed to Jared, the guy from uh, the trash company. <laughs> yeah, Jared from Subway was calling me. I don't know. Jo- Whoa, hey. Whoa. <laughs> it's spelled oh, different. Yeah. It's, yeah. Spelled it's a different <laughs> show. That's Never a different mind. show. That's, can only yeah, air after 10 p.m. Oh, boy. All right. All right. Here we go. More importantly, Justin. We got to see the return of the Golden Knight cutting a jet in half in the pregame show. What other team mascot logo symbol do you want them to cut in half? Do I want to see him cut in half? Oh, yeah. wow. Um, well, I mean, the jet was probably the coolest. They've done, they've done some variation of, like, fishing for a shark twice now that they've played him in the playoffs. I'm genuinely curious what they do if and when they play the Lightning in the Stanley Cup final. I heard the first year they were looking at maybe like some sort of Tesla coil situation. So I don't know what they're going to do. I'm kind of hoping that 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 Cup final matchup happens at some point. That'd be cool. I mean, they've kind of blown it two years in a row. It could have happened. Could have happened. Yeah, two years ago it would have been in Edmonton, though. That's true. (laughs) They wouldn't have been able to do it on the ice. But last year, you know, they had their chance. All right. I also need to know, before yesterday... Did you know who Jansen Harkins or Christian Reichel were? No, no of course not. <laughs> I, uh, they scored for the Jets, and I had to like look down. I'm like, are these like NHL 22 creative players? <laughs> then we were looking at the uh, rest of the roster to figure out who could then next score for the Jets, who we had never heard of. And Tony Doninato, I think. I, I don't even remember his name. Was their fourth line left wing? And I'm like, kind of hope that dude scores just, just for the heck of it. How far off are we from having a Tony Doninato or a Harkins Jansen? Yes, I know I'm screwing that up uh, for the Golden Knights since they keep having guys go from, oh, it's okay, they'll be out a day or two, to we'll see you in the playoffs. Well, as somebody, as somebody pointed out on Twitter, it's like, you know, the, how we felt about Jansen Harkins and, and Christian Reichel was probably how a lot of opponents felt about seeing, like, a Paul Cotter and a Jonas Ronbier and an Adam Brooks and a Michael Amadio. So it just happens, you know, every year, especially this year with, with COVID pulling guys out and injuries and all of this, like everybody's, everybody's digging deep into their depth chart. So uh, we're, we're seeing some names, seeing some names this year for sure. Will the Golden Knights simply be so injured all season that they never have to actually trade someone to make Jack Eichel fit? Looking that way, right? <laughs> I mean, Max Pacioretty's injury, I mean, and that probably won't keep him out for the whole year. We don't know the extent of his wrist injury, just that he had surgery. So, I mean, looking at it, that's probably not a four-month injury. But if it is, kind of solves their their cap issues. Uh, but I guess we'll see. Mark Stone's out now. We don't know what his situation's like. If he's out for a while, Robin Leonard's been out for a while. So, I mean, this team's been so banged up this year. I don't think we could rule it out of the realm of possibility that like right before the trade deadline somebody somebody with a large cap pick gets hurt long term so who knows so 
So if Laurent Brossois has to be the BGK goaltender for any length of time, do you think that this team can continue to perform at an even reasonable level? Because what we saw early in the season was their forward group and their defensemen to some degree were injured, but yet Robin Leonard was kind of helping them steady the ship. Now they don't have that advantage. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And Brossois has, he struggled a little bit. He's played four games now uh, in a row since, since Leonard's been hurt, I think I, it was in my story last night. I think his save percentage is about eight seventy-eight in those four games or so. So he's really he hasn't played all that well. They need a little bit better goaltending for sure if the defense is going to continue to struggle as it has early in the season. Though in in fairness, it has been a lot better over the last month or so. They were really good in December, but if I mean if you're going to allow thirty-seven shots like they did to the Jets, then you know you're going to you're going to need a little bit better goaltending, and they and they didn't get it last night. We have seven goals, 11 assists from Nick Wall this year, 10 goals, 24 assists from Chandler Stevenson. Do you believe in them when it comes to like, hey, playoff time when the Golden Knights season actually matters? Like, do you believe those two guys are going to continue to produce at what our career best pace as far as goals and assists? I think they can. I mean, Chandler Stevenson's been doing it for two years now since he's arrived with the Golden Knights. And we thought a lot of that was because he was with Pacioretty and Stone. And to some degree, I think that that kind of helped boost him. But he's produced this season without those two as well. And he's proven that he can be a good center, whether you necessarily want him as your number one center if he doesn't have Pacioretty and Stone in the playoffs. That's, you know, that's, that's up for debate. As for Nicholas Waugh, he's a guy who's just continually gotten better He's been given more opportunities. I do believe in Nicholas Law. He was a real top player coming out of junior. He had a high pedigree, came over in that Eric Holla trade a couple of years ago. And since he's gotten ice time and he's seen his role evolve, he's just produced more and more. So Nicholas Law is a guy I do believe in. I was high on him as a prospect when he came over. And now that he's continuing to produce and continuing to play well, I think that you're very happy with him as as kind of your third center or playing on that third line. So, yeah, I mean, you don't necessarily want Stevenson and Waugh, I think, is your number one and two centers, but that's what you have Jack Eichel and William Carlson for. So, yeah, I do believe in them uh, to be able to continue to play very well. Justin, the Golden Knights, despite the fact that they've had probably the roster they expected for maybe a quarter of the season are leading the Western Conference in points. And so when we look at the situation, we talk about the, you know, the Michael Amadios and and Cotters of the world, how important is it for the Golden Knights to fill in for these injuries versus just continuing to try to get by the way that they have with what they uh, can pull up from Henderson or in, you know, minor trades here and there. Like I said, I said at the beginning of the year when they were struggling that this regular season doesn't super matter for the Golden Knights. Like, they just need to get to the playoffs. And when they were 1-4 and four and everybody's hurt, that was maybe in doubt for a minute or two. But but the Pacific Division is starting to shape out the way that we kind of thought it was going to. Like, it looked early on in the year. It's like, wow, the Oilers are good. The Flames are good. The Ducks are good. Even the Kings and Sharks are playing really well. Now it's starting, kind of starting to settle back to what we expected. The Golden Knights are looking like they might run away with this division, even with all these guys hurt. The Kings and Sharks have faded. The Ducks are about a 500 team. The Oilers are now, I don't think they've won in two or three months at this point. But So you're looking at it, and as long as everybody's healthy for the playoffs, you're fine. If you're the number one seed in the West or if you sneak in as a wild card spot, the Golden Knights are good enough when they're healthy to beat anybody, whether it's on the road, whether they're at home. So the regular season doesn't super matter. So if they can continue to get by and just get healthy for the playoffs, 
they're going to be fine, whether they're the number one seed in the Pacific or they're starting on the road against Minnesota or whoever. I think they'll be all right. So, yeah, if you can just get by, you're fine. And that's what they've done more than that so far. Even with everybody out, like you said, they're at the top of the Pacific. Is there anyone in the Pacific that you'd actually be worried about them playing in a seven-game series? I think the Flames are a bad matchup for the Golden Knights. I think that would be the one that I'd be a little worried about. They are a tight defensive team with really good goaltending, and that's the type of team, the Stars, the Canadians, that have knocked them out of the playoffs the last two years. I don't think you're super worried about the Oilers. I don't think the Ducks are as legitimate as maybe they were looking like early in the year. And Yeah, I, as far as, you know, the Central Division's got some really good teams. I ne- wouldn't necessarily want to play the Wild or the Avalanche or or the Blues, or even the Predators, the way that they're playing right now. But as far as the Pacific Division goes, I think they can still beat the Flames, but that's the one matchup that maybe you're looking at potentially an upset. Uh, what are you more disappointed in, Arizona State basketball being 5-8 and eight, or Arizona State football losing the Las Vegas Bowl? You know, the Las Vegas Bowl, who cares, man? They were playing. <laughs> they were playing Wisconsin. They were a touchdown underdog. They had like three of their guys opted out. Who cares? Basketball team. Didn't even know they were five and eight. I'm about to start tuning in to watch them. I saw they're playing Arizona this week, so I guess we're going to have to watch that this weekend. I'm sure it'll go well. <laughs> Probably very well for you. He is Justin Everson from the Las Vegas Sun. Justin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. All right, here we go. We got Golden Knights tickets to give away. They are hopefully playing the Blackhawks on January 8th. We got two tickets for you if that game does happen. 702-364-1100 is the phone number. 702-364-1100. Golden Knights, Blackhawks, January 8th. 702-364-1100. We will take caller number 9 at 702-364-1100. You're locked in the press box. Congratulations to Jesse. He won a pair of tickets to go see the Golden Knights take on the Blackhawks. That game will be on January 8th. I do want to touch on one NBA story. The Houston Rockets, who've lost seven games in a row. Kevin Porter of the Rockets apparently left the arena at halftime during their loss on Saturday. Um, The reports are that John Lucas, who is an assistant coach, called out players during halftime. Uh, Porter left Christian Wood, former UNLV player, Uh, He refused to check in. He stayed in the arena, was on the bench, but he refused to check into the game in the second half. Christian Wood had already been punished. He was uh, removed from the starting lineup because he missed a mandatory COVID testing window. He did not show up for it. So the Rockets were punishing him by not letting him start. He only played eight minutes in the first half. And then after whatever happened at halftime, he refused to come back into the game. This morning, according to the Houston Chronicle, the Rockets have now suspended both Kevin Porter and Christian Wood for one game. Adam, what do you think was said at halftime between the Rockets assistant coach, John Lucas and Kevin Porter and Christian Wood? Well, judging by Kevin Porter's background, not much. Um, You know, he he has a history of being uh, a troubled guy in the locker room. The the Chris Wood thing is a little stranger, a guy who's gone from, you know, intriguing prospect at UNLV to all-star in the NBA. It's really difficult to understand what could have led to this, that two players at two different stages of their career with two different backgrounds would both 
come out with the same kind of reaction is to me at least something that makes you look a little harder at the coaching side to say what did they do to you know get these completely different players in this spot so tyler i guess my my question back to you is is this sort of getting both stages of antonio brown grief in the same player <laughs> right like you end up getting chris wood who refuses to go in the game and kevin porter who leaves the locker room <laughs> Well, the the comparison to Antonio Brown's a, a fun one and also a good one because, like you said, we had two players at two different stages because it, it'd be one thing if yesterday Antonio Brown left and, like, Mike Evans went with him. Like, then we'd be doing, like, what the hell happened here? Like, why did Mike Evans also just leave his team in the middle of a game? But because it was just Antonio Brown, we know we know it's Antonio Brown there. And like you said with Kevin Porter, this is not necessarily a new type of situation that Kevin Porter finds himself in. So Kevin Porter leaving a game at halftime, well, it's still pretty shocking to leave your entire team at halftime, but you kind of say, okay. But when it's Christian Wood there too, it's, it's fascinating. And we did get sort of the, okay, I'm early in my career. I can't just walk out of this arena. I need, I, I can make a lot more money playing this sport. I'm going to show some defiance and not play in Christian Wood. And also you have Kevin Porter who just says, yeah, bleep it. I'm gone. I'm not, I'll come. I'll see you guys tomorrow or maybe never. I don't know. Whenever he shows up again, but that's, it's fascinating. And I would, I would love to know what was said. Cause I, I have to imagine there's plenty of times NBA coaches like get in the face or confront or yell at the players at halftime, like not nearly as much as it would happen in college basketball. But I have to imagine there's plenty of times where guys are confronted with how they played or what's happening on the court, that it's not that out of the norm where a player would say, Nope, I can't take this. I have to leave. Or even in Christian Wood's case, I can't take this. I'm not checking in anymore. What's amazing to me is that you would think for the Rockets, it would just be a matter of putting the first half tape on saying like, Hey guys, really? Right? Really? As opposed to needing to call anybody out. Uh, but that, that team is filled with a lot of very young and impressionable players. I'm sure as a coaching staff, they probably feel the need to come down and, and, and give the fatherly take that we know that uh, John Lucas might. So, you know, the, the Houston Rockets have a lot of talent, a lot of need for direction. It sounds like, though, they might have taken the wrong one. What did they do? They went 15 straight losses, seven straight wins, and now seven straight losses again? Yeah. Sounds about right, doesn't it? For, <laughs> a, for a, again, a very talented young team. That's a fun That's a fun stretch for a team to go through. A bunch of losses in a row. Yeah, we're just going to rip off a win streak that nobody thought, and then a bunch of losses again. All right. I want to end the show with this, Adam. Do you not manually open a garage door? This tweet sent me into a rage yesterday. <laughs> On Saturday, Mike Gramala tweeted, the power went out in my neighborhood and my garage door wouldn't open. So I'm Ubering to the Thomas and Mack Center right now. For future reference, is there a way to manually open the garage during an outage? Yes! Tyler, there are times that I know that Mike is trolling us, right? Like, there are times that he's clearly going for it with the pictures of the stakes that are overdone and this and that, but... What was this? What this, was this? This was genuine Mike Gramala. Yes, we all know how to open the garage door if it gets stuck. <laughs> Every one of us who's had a car, we know how to do it. Why? Why? Do, how, let me ask you another question. 
even if he didn't know. Google? So, this was right before a UNLV basketball game. I saw Mike Gramala shortly after he sent this tweet. Um, Mike was apparently flustered that he was going to be late to the game. And so, his first thought was, I just got to get a ride and ordered an Uber. And the thought never crossed his mind to Google this so that he could figure it out and open his garage door manually and not have to call an Uber and probably get to the game quicker had he done so. I. <laughs> How old is Mike? <laughs> uh, he is, I believe, 39 years old. Oh, my God. Okay. I actually thought he was younger. I, I thought maybe <laughs> there was some amount of youth involved here, um, but there's not. Uh God, Tyler, I'm speechless. I'm, you know, you know how often it is that I'm speechless. I'm speechless at this one. (laughs) I just very much know. There's not many times I get to like flex on somebody that like, yes, I am more handy about something. I am more, I like, I can do that, but I could in this instance. And here's the best part. Mike Ramallah, the day before, tweeted out a picture of a bench he built himself. Like, he, he'll build his own furniture. Like, Mike Ramallah is not a completely incompetent human being, but he did not know that there's a cord on your garage door that you can pull down that will then allow you to open it manually. He was completely I, unaware of that. I, I don't know that I have ever met a less intellectually curious person <laughs> than Mike Ramallah because the things he knows, the things he is dedicated to knowing, he knows inside and out, Right. Like, I will trust Mike Ramallah to break down basketball video all day long. Um, the things he does not know, he is not going to know. <laughs> he just simply will not. Hey, he did willingly eat a burrito on this show. Did you see how he ate his burrito? No, I, I didn't. So we had a Taco Bell breakfast burrito. First time he's had a burrito in his life. Uh, he turned it so that it was horizontal and took a oh, bite yeah. like out of the okay. middle of it. All right. Um, you know what? I, I think I might have checked out of Gramala food stuff permanently after the Buffalo Wing story. Oh, did you? That that did you? That, what? that was the that, that I think that was the one. That was that was the instance where we said, okay, that's enough of Mike Gramala. Well, we haven't, and there will be more Mike Gramala. And by the way, if you listen to Festivus, it was Drew who blamed me for creating a monster in Mike Ramallah by forcing him to eat things and continually asking about it. I'll take credit for that. I'll always take credit for that. <laughs> Mike Ramallah, what a special human being.